Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. This is The Guardian. I'm Laura Murphy-Oates, coming to you from Gadigal Land, and this is The Full Story. Today, we're bringing you a special episode from the Australian Politics Podcast. If you haven't heard their AMA episodes, strap in. Basically, it's where Guardian Australia's politics team all crowd into a room and answer reader questions about the inner workings of the Canberra bubble. It's fun, it's informative, it's a bit rowdy. You are with Catherine Murphy. I'm political editor of Guardian Australia. And with me in the pod cave are... Daniel Hurst. Josh Butler. Paul Carp. And Amy Ramakis. And today Today we're answering answering your politics politics questions. questions. And we almost screwed up the intro, but we did it. (laughs) We absolutely did it. Anyone would think it's the end of the year. I know. Anybody would think that. Yeah. Anyway, uh, look, we love the questions from you. And I must say the questions uh, for the end of the year are particularly good. And Amy is going to kick us off because, Amy, Kevin has a question. Mm-hmm. Hello, Kevin. Now, Kevin says, after the Joint Standing Committee on Electoral Matters report, this is why we love you, Kevin, because you're way into it, uh, what is the appetite uh, for any cr- increase to the size of the parliament? Uh, I imagine moving to four territory sem- senators is the path of least resistance. Uh, increases to the size of the House of Reps in the two hard basket. Then there's some observations about England. Then we get to the crux, which is a lot of fun. We'd love to hear your dream reforms for the workings of the parliament, Amy Rebecca. Ah, so many reforms. I mean, to get to the first couple of questions, I think Kevin is absolutely right. I think increasing the territorial Senate representation is probably the path of least resistance and probably the uh, part of that Senate inquiry that will most likely become reality, if any of it is. That is because when you look at the ACT, for instance, I think if the Liberals want any hope of having further representation in the Senate over the next uh, few elections, they would want to have uh, more senators to choose from because David Pocock pretty much has that bedded down uh, as an independent and Katie Gallagher's not going anywhere. So, Yep, that's what we can see happening. The House of Reps, I mean, nobody wants to see more politicians as a general rule. (laughs) Uh, Hang on, hang on. I wouldn't mind seeing a few more politicians. It's your job. I think the people, you know, listening to this podcast and stuff are like, do we need more politicians? Can they not do their job? That's not to say that there are a lot of people who perhaps deserve better representation or easier access to their representation because the bigger your electorate is, the harder it is to actually see your MP and there is a case to be made there. But 
on the whole, do people want more politicians? I'm going to say that the immediate answer is probably no. I do think they want better representation though. And I think that when I say that, I don't necessarily mean personalities. I mean, they want to see people who have the same sorts of experiences and life as they do in the parliament. So if I was in charge of, you know, creating the Australian parliament, which I should be, obviously, I would want to see actual quotas put in place. I would want to see the political parties actually have to meet, you know, gender you mean, quotas, yeah, diversity quotas, diversity quotas mm-hmm. and actually represent what the census tells us Australia looks like, which also means age quotas. I mean, like when you have people representing you who are not representative of the Australian public on the whole, you have to start wondering, can they actually make these decisions for you? So mm-hmm. that's what I would put in place. Mm-hmm. Plus, I would put in place term limits because the idea that you can have uh, an entire political career just from go to woe and continue to represent the Australian people when you actually haven't really had to mix with the Australian people in workplaces or different aspects of society outside of that political lens, I don't think means that you get the greatest representation. Come in, do whatever it is that you felt passionate about and then piss off and go do something else and let somebody else who has some sort of passion come through the parliament. Mm -hmm. I believe, you know, twice. That should be as much as you should get elected. I I don't think more MPs is in the too hard basket. I think if Labor announced it unilaterally, you know, 24 more MPs going up to 175 in the lower house, I think Peter Dutton would take the cheap shot that, you know, Labor wants more politicians. Mm. But I think that um, it's in the Nationals' interests uh, to avoid having their seats eliminated as, you know, electorates go... Uh, you know, one MP to 100, 120, 120, 130,000 electors per seat, like that results in regional seats getting eliminated. I mean, it is kind of telling, I think, that you think Peter Dutton would immediately be like, Labor wants more MPs because they assume they wouldn't win any of those extra seats. I I just think that 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 is something that there could be a deal on. Uh, Obviously, if Labor did it unilaterally, they'd get monstered for it. But, like, I think there's something... There could be a deal on that. Well, and um, I'm astonished that none of you at this juncture have advocated an end to question time, particularly you, Amy. Look, I think question time should exist, but it should exist like they do it in in the UK with actual freaking questions. Mm -hmm. Like I cannot stand Dix's, just make it a press release. It already is a press release. I have hundreds of them in my inbox. They're already all over the socials. You know what? I don't think that people in Albury do actually care about what the government's strong economic plan and Mm. whether there are any alternative views. I think they probably care about whether bridges are going to get built or whether there's actually going to be funding for their hospital or, you know, whether or not there's some particular migration case is actually going to be dealt with. I think that's what people care about. I think that's what backbenchers actually hear from their constituents. So if backbenchers were actually able to ask backbencher questions, we would all be better off, all of us. I mean, question time is a joke the way that it is carried out in the Australian Parliament and it's just theatre and if people actually wanted to increase their faith in democracy, they would see the politicians doing the work that they do behind the scenes 
publicly mm. and we don't see that. I think on that point as well, like just one one quick one. I mean, we do already struggle to find, what is it, 227 serious people in the whole country to <laughs> already be in. But if, where are we going to find 40 more? Like, then the flip side is, like, you know, on another, on another matter, you could kind of go, well, maybe some states already have too many senators, for instance. If you uh, say yes. Queensland, Ooh, I, 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 didn't, say, I didn't, the word was the, te- I didn't the word Tasmania mentioned. I didn't say any single one. Tasmania's got some serious issues. The they, deserve some, <laughs> they deserve some representation. Oh, they do, but do they deserve quite that much representation? Well, I mean, like, when you take into all of the, like, big issues that Tasmania has to deal with on the front line, yeah, the economy, the climate, I, all of that. Look, I love Tasmania, to be clear. Frequent visitor. Hello, anyone in Tasmania who's listening to us this weekend. I love you all. <laughs> it was nice to see the IR bill uh, being decided by... David Pocock from the ACT and Jackie Lambie Network yeah. from Tasmania, oh, no, 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 two, two yeah. jurisdictions that aren't ruled by the Minerals Council. <laughs> that, uh, that, so that is true. Yeah. yeah, that is true. That is that's the, that's the flip side. That is the flip side of the point of Tasmanian overrepresentation. But board, I, yeah, board, I think board. people. It wouldn't be so much of an of an issue when we look at the number of representation of representatives if those representatives were actually able to represent their yeah, communities and point. not. To follow yes. party scripts. politics. Yes, scripts, exactly. All right. Very good. Kevin, love your work. Thank you. Okay, Josh, you're up next. Now, this question is from David, uh, who is uh, evidently quite concerned in the, uh, the wash-up to the Voice referendum campaign. And regular readers, of course, will know that Josh followed that very, very closely throughout. So, Josh, uh, David asks, the campaign leaving, leading up to the voice referendum was marked with numerous misleading statements and even outright lies. Uh, this uh, was widely acknowledged after the fact, including by The Guardian. Has the nature of cover- coverage of politics changed in reaction to this? And do you think it will change as we head towards the next federal election? Big mm. question from David. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a good question. I guess one to start with, um, you know, I would say that it wasn't just after the fact that I think a lot of these lies, mistruths, um, fibs, whatever word you might like to use, exaggerations um, were sort of ventilated. I mean, I know that we tried to do a lot of it and with um, that that was one point for me through the campaign that I was really surprised by that there sort of wasn't, I guess, a greater focus on that, apart from I think some notable exceptions among some of our um, uh, you know press gallery colleagues and other media outlets. Um, I was sort of surprised there wasn't a greater ventilation of that sort of stuff through the the campaign and not just from media outlets, I thought from the government as well. I thought there was quite interesting through most of the campaign that I I, I found at least in a, a, a number of a number of um, examples that they sort of didn't try and engage in sort of this information war, that they tried the Michelle Obama thing that we talk a lot about in this office mm. of, you know, going, we go, when they, what is it, when they go low, we, we go, go high. high. And mm. that's that because of, I like to go low. Yeah. <laughs> but and like, it, it's, like a, it's like an admirable sentiment. I just think that through most of that campaign, it just meant that all these, you know, lies, mysteries, exaggerations, fibs, what have you, went sort of unchallenged and it was, you know, oh, we're not going to respond to that. We don't want to give it the time of day, but it just meant that the lie went out there unchallenged. Um, I think that idea of this information war sort of thing, um, I'm really interested in how that feeds through to an election event. I mean, obviously it's very different um, trying to get people to vote no on a binary yes, no question on a sort of, for most people, sort of tricky concept that, they didn't really have a lot of investment in, or your personal skin in that game. Um, 
uh, or you know, personal sort of um, uh, you know, uh, being affected by the outcome of the referendum. Obviously, it's very different to try and get someone to vote for a political party like the Liberals or the you know, <clears throat> Labor based on that. So I'm, I'm not, I, I don't necessarily buy into the idea that you know. Um, that that strategy worked, you know, throw all this muck in the air and, and cloud the cloud the situation and see what happens. I don't think that's necessarily going to feed through to you know an election winning position for any party. But in terms of what the, the question sort of went to, how does it change the political calculus? Um, it was sort of the first big win, I think, for the. Peter Dutton brand of sort of negative politics. Um, again, I don't think that means that it's a Peter Dutton prime ministership, but I think there will be some people who try and learn some lessons from that, maybe, you know, for, for good and for evil um, going into the next uh, election cycle. Um, I don't think it will be maybe the main track that, that people use election 2025, but it might be one part of one track of the messaging strategy, maybe. Mm. Um, mm. But, Others got thoughts. Mm. Others got thoughts about this, whether whether we've sort of uh, entered a, you know, a new era, dispiriting era of sort of post-truth or, uh, yeah. or, you know, whether it's a function of a referendum, which is a different sort of campaign. Well, I was just going to say that there's not, you know, the whole sort of trying to fact-check things, there's always that issue of whether you elevate the mistruth in in fact-checking it and people sort of reinforce the original claim. But actually, these things are running rampant anyway. Like, whether you fact-check or not doesn't... Like, it's being broadcast all across. Grabs are being used. There's very limited scrutiny when grabs are run that have just blatant mistruths and exaggerations in there. And got to say, there's not real punishment, like when I say punishment, there's not real evidence of consequence for such mistruths. So why wouldn't the people using these tactics continue? Well, yeah, I mean, like I, we had a taste of it in the 2019 election. Mm. Murphy covered the death tax, mm. uh, the death. you know, myth yeah. that wasn't, you know, part of the mainstream media coverage, but was certainly was being heard about at poll booths by, mm. you know, a lot of people who were just, you know, very concerned that there was going to be a death tax. And I think that should have been a a precursor. It should have been like the canary in the coal mine as mm. to what we, the media, are facing. Because uh, I'm, I've had this argument, you know, a lot of times. I don't think that media or the press gallery is necessarily fit for purpose in this post-truth world that we that we face. And we saw the American media really struggle with how to deal with Trump because we use the old rule of engagement. And when you're dealing with a side of politics or individuals in within politics who do not follow those rules, then we have to come up with different ways of combating that. And it can't just be individual organisations or individual journalists. It has to be a Broader. our job is to tell people the facts with in context and we can't just keep both sidings things. Mm. Just because somebody says something doesn't mean that we have to report it or give it credence or give it the top line where we then have somebody disagreeing with what has said. We have a responsibility to include a lot of context and truth within that. I mm. think it's a permanent feature. I mean, uh, the, the releases from immigration detention as a result of the mm. High Court decision is another example where you've now got the coalition claiming, oh, they didn't have to release all those people because the order only related to the plaintiff. I think that's pretty clearly 
really misinformation, you know, implying that they could have could have kept people or explicitly saying they could have kept people locked up when it just would have resulted in more court cases mm. um, that the government would have lost. Um, the the other thing is uh, there's people have some hope that having truth in political advertising laws will fix this. I, I don't really think that that will be successful because um, truth in political advertising only works when it's it's a clearly falsifiable claim. Mm. Yeah. And that's generally only true of statements about the past rather than the future. And a lot of the great scare campaigns have been statements about the future, like the coalition are going to privatise Medicare, whatever that means, Would it, wouldn't have been weeded out by truth in political advertising. Labor is going to introduce a death tax, wouldn't have either. Mm. So No, 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 it's tricky. I think I would only add one thing to this, and I think all the observations have been really good. Um, I would only add one thought. Obviously, we, we've we had election campaigns uh, characterised by, you know, weaponised mistruths for as long as I've been reporting politics, which is now several centuries. Uh, so that that sort of you know lo- let's let's just be frank, lying your backside off is not a new feature of our political system. Certainly not over my reporting lifetime. The thing that does make it complicated, I think, or more complicated than it has been, uh, is and this has sort of been creeping up basically over the last ten years or so. Is is the rise obviously of the platforms? Uh, you know, once upon a time. Mainstream media outlets like us, we were the gatekeepers of, of you know what was what was true, or uh, you know what certainly what was reported. The first draft of history of history gatekeepers, right? That was us. Uh, no longer the case. Now there there are many many different modes where uh, political actors can basically weaponize weaponize sort of propositions or outright lie. And, and narrow cast and micro target particular groups in the community. And w- there is very limited, as, as Paul's sort of pointed out, it's, it's a very difficult area to regulate. So I, I think that's slightly depressing, David, but uh, yeah, anyway, anyway. Uh, uh, but, you know, nonetheless, it, it's Amy's right that it makes it, these conditions make us, should make us think very carefully about how we conduct ourselves in public space and what are, what the fundamentals of our job is in this new reality. Okay, so let's move on. Daniel's up. Uh, and this question is from Michelle, who is kind enough to compliment our organisation's coverage on uh, the dreadful war uh, in the Middle East at this point in time. So thank you, Michelle. We appreciate that because it's a real tough battle to cover. So uh, Michelle asks, why uh, hasn't the Australian media been covering uh, the conflict in the Middle East fairly for the past nine weeks? Uh, Do we actually have a free press? Now, just for context for everyone listening to our conversation, Michelle is very clearly uh, deeply worried about the humanitarian situation in Gaza. Uh, Daniel, Foreign Affairs Supremo, over to you. (laughs) Supremo probably is a bit too far. Um, I guess what I'd say is that I'm part of a bigger picture of coverage that The Guardian is doing. I'm not an editor. um, And my focus is on the Australian political reaction here to the conflict. We have correspondents on the ground in the region and They've been doing some exceptional coverage. They have been live blogging it 24 hours a day since 
the 7th of October. And the reports they've been producing have been increasingly dire in recent weeks, I have to say, about the conditions and the death toll. More than 18,000 Palestinians now killed, obviously, after the Hamas attacks when about 1,200 people were killed Mm. in southern Israel. Um, I'm not a spokesperson for the rest of the media. We do have a free press, but that doesn't mean that different organisations don't have a different approach to how it's covered. People listening to this will see if they read different Australian media outlets and watch different Australian broadcasts or or radio shows that there is a different approach depending on the outlet to how it's broadly framed. All I can say is that we're trying to do our best to cover the situation and the real human impact of what's going on, which is is dire. Um, And that that it does seem this debate has become quite tribal um, and it's it's hard... um, for people, some people to have multiple thoughts, to be able to hold multiple thoughts at the same time. Mm. And I guess we just need to maintain our humanity. Yeah, well, that's that's beautifully answered. And I would add to that, uh, just, and I'm sure we would all add to this, uh, just it gives us an opportunity to express our appreciation, particularly to reporters in the field Absolutely. who are operating in, uh, you know, often... Uh, very real danger and uh, also having to make very important decisions about uh, what what to cover, what not to cover, how to balance these, uh, you know, the various sort of historical contexts of a really difficult uh, conflict. So, And I think I'd also say it's absolutely agree with you there um, and that we as journalists are not above scrutiny mm. and we shouldn't be afraid of hearing from our readers and from our audiences and, you know, um, I'm always interested to hear and and open to hearing from readers. Um, uh, And there is, you know, obviously a lot of people following every word of coverage, um, but across the breadth of our coverage, um, I'm proud of what The Guardian's produced. Mm, Yeah, thank you, Daniel. And also uh, just, again, from all of us, just uh, very conscious that there will be people listening to this podcast who have relatives in that part of the world who have a real stake in uh, how this conflict is playing out and also uh, giving due credence to the real palpable distress that is uh, at large in the Australian community about the humanitarian situation in Gaza, which, as Daniel says, is dire. Uh, So I understand that. Uh, But I think it's been interesting uh, just to that point about holding multiples, Daniel, which is your point that we've sort of got to understand that this is is complex. It's... uh, And uh, I think I've been pleased because uh, a lot of this coverage is binary and tribal, as Daniel points out, to see some messages starting to filter through politics about the importance of all lives and the sanctity of all human life. I think, thank God, is all I will say in relation to that. So thank you for that. Paul, you are up next. And from uh, Nihat, Nihat, I, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly and I apologise if I'm not. Uh, now, this is a question about Simon Birmingham. Merry Christmas, Simon, if you're listening. 
<laughs> okay. So uh, the question is, with this uh, firmly Dutton's LMP, this being the coalition, how do you see a Birmingham's role as a senior moderate and Senate leader, yet he seems to pander along to everything that Dutton says? I'm struggling to see a more disappointing politician than Birmingham. As I said, Simon, if you're listening, Merry Christmas. Uh, Turnbull at least tried and failed. Birmingham seems to do nothing. Sitting on the fence for the voice debate as leader was surely untenable. I don't mind politicians who stay there for a long time. Amy, it's almost like this this person read your mind. Um, uh, as long as they're motivated and well-reasoned. Penny Wong and, Kenny, and Katie Gallagher are true examples of inspiration from this uh, listener. I don't understand why Birmingham remains, Paul. Well, first of all, I think the moderates are in a very weak position. Mm-hmm. I mean, Malcolm Turnbull was prime minister and wasn't able to do what he wanted to do um, because of the conservatives in the party. And uh, since then, the Teals have you know wiped out predominantly, or almost exclusively, moderate MPs um, at the last election. So there are just fewer of them in the coalition party room and the people that remain in the coalition party room don't seem to be thinking about winning those parts of the country back that much. So they're not they're not putting their their, their moderate thinking caps on a lot of the time. Uh, in terms of Birmingham personally, uh, he does speak up on um, issues uh, including climate change. He made a forceful intervention in the safeguard mechanism debate, critical of the way that his own side of politics had dealt with that issue. Um, and he does argue internally Uh, I reported that he was one of a number of moderates at Shadow Cabinet who was arguing to uh, have a free vote or at least keep that option open for longer during the voice debate uh, rather than locking in uh, against against the voice. And you could see, uh, you know, he he and others then were then bound to the collective position. He would have had to quit Shadow Cabinet if he was going to dissent from from that position. As Julian Lisa did, so it is. It is possible, but the moderates who remain, some of them, you know, didn't didn't say how they were going to vote per- personally, which can be interpreted as you know them them blinking uh, blinking twice to let you know that your <laughs> uh, viewers know at home that they Secretly still have a soul, yes. despite despite uh, being bound to the collective position. Um, but look, I can I can tell from the the question of you know loving Katie Gallagher and Penny Wong that they're probably a, a progressive voter, so I can understand why why they're disappointed. But remember, you know Penny Wong has been smashed in her time for defending collective positions of the Labor Party yeah, when Labor was opposed to same-sex marriage, for example. Um, so, you know, people don't always get their way all of the time and the reason they stick around is that they they think that they are doing some good um, and that they, they're perhaps um, saving their party by being uh, the, the dissenting voice, even if, even if they very rarely, if ever at the moment, get their way. Mm. And he's been asked, he has been asked about this um, and he is Shadow Foreign Affairs Minister. So he's, his defence um, has been, well, he's focused on issues in foreign affairs, which he thinks are extremely important at the current time, points to China, navigating that. Um, and he's sort of put a priority on that rather than the, the voice debate. So, I mean, in politics, it's always, there are always um, accommodations and compromises being made like every single day. Mm-hmm. And you've got to decide where you draw the line. And he hasn't 
<laughs> quit in protest yet, so he he must think that he's still making a difference internally. Mm. But mm. it's right, Dutton, mm. and the the right wing of the party is ascendant. Yeah, the only thing, other uh, one thing I'd add quickly is that uh, I, I Paul's mentioned the issues where Birmingham has stood up in shadow cabinet discussions, particularly climate, and also during the Voice. But I think, uh, I mean, certainly my my mail for what it's worth around the place is that he does he has stood up on a number of other issues. Uh, but uh, if you don't win, it's you know what's that adage about? History is always written by the victors. Mm. If you don't win the battle, you don't write the narrative. So I think it's it's hard for people, though, particularly people who are moderate liberals themselves, given that Simon Birmingham stood up after the election loss and was pretty explicit about what mm. he believed the Liberal Party needed to do. And it was probably one of the first true mask off moments where he just was saying, you know, this party is in trouble. And if we don't actually get our act together and start appealing to more Australians than what we have been, we're not going to make it. Since that time, though, uh, I think the moderate liberal mantle has been, it's been left to Bridget Archer Mm. to carry. And she's publicly had to do that pretty much alone within her party. I mean, yes, Andrew Bragg has put his head, head up above the tyrants a few times, but Bridget Archer is the person who constantly has to take the hits and it's because she believes that there should be moderates within the Liberal Party. But when you don't see her moderate colleagues back her up in that, you start to wonder what it is they're fighting for within yeah, there. Yeah, and, and Archer's a, a really good contrast point and also, you know, because a lot of people ask me, why is Bridget Archer still in the Liberal Party? Well, because she thinks that the Liberal Party should have moderate wing. I mean, crazy. Um, Okay, so last question now. We'll all weigh on this, but Paul's going to lead. This is from Sue. Thank you, Sue. So Sue observes that there seems to be a split in the political media between uh, whether uh, Anthony Albanese should stick with his slow and incremental don't scare the public style of government to have the best chance of another term or whether he should be acting faster to actually make noticeable progress on a few of the major crises he said prior to the election that he wanted to deal with and stop allowing Dutton to control the agenda. What is the view of the Guardian Political Brains Trust? starting with Paul? Well, I think they have followed through on a lot of of what they promised at the election, but that hasn't prevented them from having a dip in popularity. They're certainly in a bad spot at the moment, you know, lost the voice referendum, cost of living and housing is very high. He's smashed for being Airbus Albo, not in the country enough and two hands off when things go wrong, like the um, high court decision that went against them. There are sort of two theories that are represented in that question. Um, One is that they are losing progressives to their left. And so, you know, they are pro-AUKUS. They didn't do enough uh, on rents during the housing debate, haven't spoken up enough about Palestine, haven't reformed stage three tax cuts. That's one view. The other is that they're, you know, losing votes to the coalition, you know, on economic management, can't trust Labor with um, the economy. And so maybe you win those voters back by making incremental progress rather than any sudden movements. I think the polling data does suggest that it's more the latter, that they're losing 
primary votes to the coalition rather than to the Greens. Um, so perhaps it would be possible to to seize the momentum by, you know, radically reforming stage three tax cuts and do, doing things very differently. But I think that is not Anthony Albanese's um, disposition. His theory of the case has always been that you, you do exactly what you said you would do and people will reward you for that. The other thing that we need to remember is that, um, you know, he was getting smashed in the middle of last term when he was opposition leader and he said, you know, he had to tell everyone, no, no, it's it's where you end up at the end of the term. It's not where you are in the middle of the term. And that that paid off last time because he was very deliberate about when they did things like announcing their emissions reduction targets and all, all very strategic that it would it would be there on election day. So I think that the the answer to this is that they they will they will be in incremental like i don't think that they're going to be ra- like radically different but that it, it is it is that, 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 it, it depends whether they succeed in the next year in making a material difference to people's lives like if if they're not giving more cost of living relief it helps to bring inflation down and then actually helps households and you know if there are interest rate cuts instead of 13 in a row by the time people are voting so i i i, I think that's the answer that they they will they will be incremental um, and they'll be judged on how successful they are at improving people's material conditions yeah what is it kicking with the wind in early 2025 or something like that. Um, I, I'm not sure if I agree that with the supposition there that, um, uh, what is it, Peter Dutton's controlling the agenda. I mean, obviously, apart from the last sort of couple of weeks, I mean, I can't really think of many examples. The voice. Mm. But I don't think he really controlled the agenda on that, really. Well, I mean, I think he led a lot mm. of that argument. I think this year, this, the back end of this year, I think we've been hearing a lot more from Dutton and we've sure, been seeing yeah. a lot more of the government react to mm. what Dutton is saying. Rather than being on the front foot, To yeah. the point now where you see people look at Labor's migration review, which was in train mm. well before all of this, and saying you're responding to Dutton's yeah. fear campaign about big Australia. Mm. So whether or not it's true, I think there's the perception. At least recently. I, no, I definitely agree with recently. I mean, the the point about slow and incremental though, I mean, to, to go to your point a bit, Paul, like, you know, obviously they have done a lot of the things they promised they would do. And I know that um, uh, Albanese and a lot of the government ministers like to rattle off that list of all the things they've done. Oh, we made this promise, we're doing it, we've done this, we've done that. And like that list of, you know, oh, co- what about cost of living? Oh, well, we did, we did cheaper medicines. We did, you know, this and all these things that people don't really remember or care about a lot. Um, I think that point about incrementalism might sort of um, come back to, like you say, you know, if, if, if it gets to the point where inflation slowed down and there's interest rate cuts rather than, you know, rises and, you know, maybe maybe it's like they, they win the day in the end. But if it doesn't quite go that way, I think there's a lot of people who are struggling with cost of living pressures at the moment who, you know, maybe don't want to hear about incrementalism. They don't, they don't want to hear about, oh, we'll just hang on and we'll get there in the end. I think the slow and steady wins the race thing has been disrupted by Peter Dutton's political strategy, which is just blast everything and everything is terrible. Mm. Um, and obviously the, one of the risks for the government is that they're being defined by others. They, they do need a few big ticket things going into the next election to define them. And I think one of them is going to be early education reform. Um, that's just a, that's something that I think it's been flagged before, but I think that that's part of Albanese's intent um, but I think it obviously needs to include cost of living and housing. Here's he, he's, he's a free agenda for them. If if they reform stage three tax cuts, they'll get smashed for breaking the promise and that'll arm Dutton to the teeth. 
it should just be price caps, right? They're doing it in the NDIS. They're saying there shouldn't be an NDIS premium that you can charge more for a support if it's to someone on the NDIS than aged care or someone else. They, they, the ACCC wants them to do it in, in childcare to stop price rises chewing up um, the, the, the subsidies they're giving out. It doesn't cost the budget to, to, to impose price caps on things. Like, I, I I think that's where they should be taking it. Yeah, it's kind of curious, isn't it? Because the the polling would suggest to us that there is this sort of appetite that the prolonged kind of period of inflation and this sort of sense of families and people sort of feeling powerless and viewing their governments as powerless that, uh, you know, if you take if you take our polls literally, there, there is an appetite for sort of genuine old school redistribution. Uh, uh, well, it's it's quite interesting. It's quite notable uh, in the polling, but of course that also carries risks in terms of how you want to position yourself and what your political opponents will make of your agenda. I think I, I can't remember which of us said. Uh, just in terms of the economy, uh, you know, it's the economy stupid. I mean, cliche in politics, but I think part of the sort of terrain of the new year depends on whether or not uh, that we're sort of at the peak of the mm. of the economic hard times. And there is some sort of uh, well, you could interpret the data to suggest that we might be at the peak now. And then things will start to moderate over the next 12 months. Uh, you know, I'm not entirely certain that the whole we're responsible budget managers pitch is, is actually meeting the moment in the community where I'm not sure that the community really cares about responsible budget management at this point in time. They just care about whether or not they can pay their mortgage. But anyway, at one level, I applaud them for doing it though, because we normally at this stage of the economic cycle, someone will have said, let's cut fuel excise by $3,011 million and screw the budget. And then we have, you know, a kind of terrible catch-up game on the other side of that. So at one level, I really applaud them for trying to tough it out uh, and ride the cycle. Uh, but at another level, people are so that they're so head down in their material circumstances. If you're not meeting people where they are, that's very problematic for the government politically. So I suspect. Uh, Paul's right that we're not going to see a new government waltz back into Canberra at the start of next year. But I also know that a lot of people will be having a lot of discussions over the yeah, Christmas break about the strategy and where they might need to be. You don't get a cookie for saying things would have been worse if we hadn't have done that. Yeah. yeah no, one of... rewards, no one rewards that sort of thing, but they certainly punish the flip side, yeah. the deficit yeah. or, you know, uh, a recession. Yeah, it's 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 anyway. It's genuinely difficult. Anyway, sadly, we are out of time. Uh, and uh, as I said, the questions were great. And of course, uh, regular readers of Guardian Australia and regular listeners to this pod and others uh, know how fabulous this Canberra team are. Uh, and I want to thank them for their superb work over the last 12 months mm. and for, uh, you know, all of the care and the diligence and the hard work. You wouldn't believe how hard this team works, guys. They work their backsides off and they've done a, you know, a stellar job 
over the course of the last 12 months. And obviously you guys appreciated that. And we got that from the questions. I didn't actually read out the herograms we got in <laughs> in the questions. Uh, but, uh, but anyway, uh, thank you uh, for listening. Uh, guys, we appreciate it. Uh, yes. Uh, and we want to give a shout out to uh, our beautiful colleague, Sarah, who is not in the pod cave with us at this point in time because uh, she's not very well. Uh, you know, uh, it's a pity she couldn't be with us for this final conversation, but uh, Sarah uh, Basford Canales will join us for the next AMA that we do uh, in the next, uh, in the next, in the new year. And regular readers, again, will be becoming familiar with her work, which is also phenomenal. So... Merry Christmas, guys. We sort of, we're nearly there. Only a few more days till Christmas. Uh, I hope everybody, because uh, the pod will have a little holiday now, uh, and I hope everybody has a restful summer, even though this is an extraordinarily difficult year and people have been under all kinds of stress and pressure and the world looks like a very unfriendly and stressful place. So I hope uh, that uh, all the listeners uh, will be able to relax over Christmas, enjoy time with your family if that's your thing, enjoy time away from your family if that's your thing, whatever your thing is, do it wonderfully and we will see you all in the new year. The executive producer of this show is Miles Martignoni. Thank you, Miles, for everything always. We'll be back uh, in the new year. Bye. Happy New Year. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.